0: For a period in the 1800s, crime in New York City began and ended with one woman, Frederica Mandelbaum. She had clawed her way up from the very bottom of society to become a major player in one of the most corrupt cities in the country. But a drive like that can be both blessing and curse, because despite everything she'd already achieved, Frederica wasn't done climbing. Unfortunately for her, when you're already at the top, there's only one place left to go. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from ParCast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we followed Frederica Mandelbaum's journey from a poor German-Jewish immigrant in 1850s New York City to the ringleader of organized crime in the big city. This week, we'll discuss Frederica's epic comeback after a personal tragedy and see how changing political tides ultimately led to her downfall. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
1: Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight... New season out on Spotify soon.
0: When Mark Twain dubbed the late 1800s in America the Gilded Age, he might as well have been talking about Frederica Marm Mandelbaum. By 1875, she was wealthy enough to hobnob with New York's high society, She wore the most fashionable dresses and held parties as lavish as the best of them. But this glittery exterior hid a rotten truth. Her upper-class lifestyle was financed by a massive criminal operation. Like the other supposedly legitimate businessmen of her time, Frederica profited off the labor of others. But unlike those tycoons who built financial empires by exploiting the desperation of the working class, Frederica made sure anyone working for her had a shot at earning a livable wage. What's more, her payroll included both the cops and the crooks. With more than a few well-placed bribes, she all but owned the police and the courts. She was at the top of her game and feeling untouchable. And then tragedy struck. Her husband of 20 plus years, Wolf Mandelbaum, died at the age of 51. His health had been steadily deteriorating despite having access to healthcare many immigrants only dreamt of. Frederica was devastated. At 48, she was a mother of four, running the largest illegal operation in the country. And now she had to do it all on her own. Wolf had been her one tether to life in her home country, her closest and most trusted confidant. Those who knew the Mandelbaums personally understood that Frederica's success was entirely her own. But Wolf was a constant support in business and in life. Losing him was an unimaginable blow. Before we continue with Frederica's psychology, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. Losing a loved one, like a spouse, is a massive turning point in most people's lives. In 1971, Dr. Colin Murray Parks named these turning points psychosocial transitions and used them to develop a theory for understanding grief. A key feature of a psychosocial transition is that it changes something about a person's assumptive world or the world as they know and understand it. This also includes their interpretation of the past and expectations of the future. Wolf was a major piece of Frederica's assumptive world. With him gone, she was forced to reimagine her life without him in it. It seems that thought paralyzed Frederica. For the better part of a year, she remained largely inactive. In her deep mourning, the majority of her business went neglected. It seemed for a time that maybe the Queen of Thieves had abdicated her throne. That was until sometime in 1876, when she met Hermann Studa, a fellow German and recent widower himself. Studa understood a lot about Frederica and what she was going through. It's unclear how they first met, but it was probably through mutual friends. Studa began working small jobs and running errands for Frederica. Quickly, he became her informant on the streets, keeping an ear out for rumors and bringing important information back to her. Though her children were there for her during this time, especially her oldest son, Julius, she had always worked to keep her problems and business from her children. It was likely a relief for Frederica to have an adult to rely on once more. The pair spent so much time together that rumors flew about, suggesting Frederica and Studa were partners in more than just business, though no one would dare to repeat that in front of Frederica. Whatever the truth about their relationship, Studa's support helped lift Frederica out of her grief. When she felt ready to make her comeback, her little chicks were there waiting for her These were the team of criminals she'd taken under her wing through the years. She had protégés in many fields, including shoplifters, pickpockets, and con artists. And together, they formed the foundation of Frederica's success. Still, small crime was for small minds, and Frederica had always dreamed big. Perhaps she wanted to prove she hadn't lost her touch during her absence. Whatever the reason, Frederica was ready to go even bigger, and to her, that meant bank heists. Over the years, Frederica had made the acquaintance of many safecrackers and bank robbers and regularly bought their wares. The take was usually as varied as it was large and typically included riches like jewels, cash, and other securities. Recognizing the potential for even greater rewards, Frederica decided she wanted in on the profits from the ground floor. She knew the way to level up her game was to get in on the planning stages. Financing a heist involved greater risk than simply fencing the score, but it also meant she'd be able to increase her take to 50%. A shrewd businesswoman, Frederica wasn't about to start handing money out to just anyone. Luckily, she knew one of the preeminent bank robbers of the time, George Leslie. Leslie had been one of Frederica's favorites since she met him in 1869. Good looking and educated, he was a perfect fit for the New York social scene. But Frederica was interested in more than just Leslie's gentlemanly appearance. He had also revolutionized safe cracking with an invention he called the Little Joker. It was a device that when placed inside a combination dial recorded where the tumblers stopped by making cuts in a tin wheel. The Little Joker was much more time efficient than the old trick of using a stethoscope and it was a lot safer and less conspicuous than dynamite. It had already proved useful in several previous heists. Leslie was definitely Frederica's guy. Having seen the kind of loot he brought in, she knew he'd be a wise investment. And she was right. Together, they ran several successful heists to the tune of millions. Although Frederica was plenty confident in Leslie, She must have been skeptical when in 1878, he told her he'd need $30,000 for his next job, robbing the Dexter Savings Bank in Maine. But when he told her how much they'd both stand to gain, the decision got a lot easier. He estimated the job would be worth at least $800,000, which would be around $21 million today. It was a big gamble, and Frederica couldn't resist. She ponied up the 30 grand and they got to work. Leslie assembled his team, picking his most trusted partners. Then the team rehearsed the plan meticulously. By February 23rd, everyone knew exactly what was expected of them. But plans are more like hopes in the criminal world. When Leslie and his crew arrived at the bank in Maine, the security guard they bribed had gotten cold feet. He refused to give them the key to the vault. Staying cool, Leslie tried to call the whole thing off. But two of the men went rogue, beating the security guard and threatening to kill him if he didn't cough up the key. Leslie, not one for violence, told them to stop. The job was clearly a bust. But Frederica's men weren't having that. They searched the guard's pockets, relieving him of $500, before they tied him up and trapped him between the two heavy security doors that led to the vault. Ransacking the rest of the bank, they found another $100. We don't know much about Frederica's reaction to this epic failure, but it's easy to imagine she insisted on collecting her half of the $600 take. But the debacle wasn't over yet. Days later, Leslie brought Frederica an article reporting that the security guard, who was very much alive when they left, was found dead in the bank. He died before anyone found him between those doors. Now, Frederica's men were in serious trouble. Robbery was one thing, but the punishment for murder was hanging. Knowing this, Leslie immediately went into hiding. Still, he and Frederica continued planning their next heist. After the screw-up in Maine, Leslie was adamant it would be his last. With this final job, he told Frederica, he'd use his take to move west and start a new crime-free life with his wife. This last robbery of the Manhattan Savings Institution had the potential to also be their biggest, Manhattan Savings was where all the wealthiest citizens of New York City kept their bonds, jewels, cash, and other valuables. And the security was intense. Despite the failure in Dexter, Frederica invested $2,500 in this plan so Leslie and his men could get their hands on the latest tools and weapons. If they managed to pull it off, the job would more than make up for her previous loss. Unfortunately, the Manhattan savings plan also involved Shang Dropper, one of the men who'd beaten the security guard in Dexter. He and Leslie had never been friends, but now the tension between them was only growing by the day. If Frederica noticed the tension, it seems she didn't intervene because things only got worse. Dropper convinced the rest of the gang not to trust Leslie telling the others that he would sell them out to save his own hide. What's more, Dropper had gotten it into his head that Leslie was having an affair with his wife. Then in late spring of 1878, five months before the planned heist, things came to a head. One day that May, 40-year-old George Leslie was at his favorite saloon, Murphy's in Brooklyn. According to reports, he was handed a note and left the bar quickly. Where he went next is anyone's guess. His body was found weeks later in Yonkers, nearly 30 miles away. There were two bullet wounds in his corpse, one in the head and one in his heart. Brokenhearted, Frederica went to the morgue to identify the body. Leslie had no family in New York, aside from his wife, who was in Philadelphia at the time. When Frederica contacted her with the terrible news, she paid for the widow's train ticket back to New York, desperate to ease her pain in any way she could. But that wasn't all Frederica paid for. Because Leslie had been one of her chicks, she covered the entire cost of his funeral and burial. As a widow herself, she knew intimately the pain the other woman was feeling. George Leslie's murder was never officially solved. Though there were plenty of theories circulated, some of them centered on Shang Dropper. With her eyes and ears everywhere, it's hard to imagine Frederica didn't eventually hear something about what went down. Perhaps she knew what happened, but felt powerless to reveal the truth. Regardless, there was a job in progress, one she'd put good money toward, So they pressed forward. Frederica could only hope Leslie's plans were enough to pull off the operation, even in the hands of less skilled criminals. Up next, Frederica gets swept up in the changing social and political tides.
1: Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hagman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath from murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed, confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from ParCast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify.
0: Now back to the story. In the late 1870s, Frederica Mandelbaum financed several large bank heists with her favorite robber, George Leslie. The risks were great, but so was the reward. Leslie brought in millions in jewels, bonds, and other valuables, but a fight between the robbers led to Leslie's murder and his most daring heist had to go on without him. Frederica probably didn't love that Shang Dropper, the man who likely killed Leslie, ended up being the one to carry out the Manhattan Savings Institution heist. But thanks to Leslie's meticulous planning, it went fairly well. Before his death, Leslie had made several bribes to help things along. First, he'd paid off the cop who would be on duty that night. He'd also bribed the night watchman to give the gang access to the bank through the janitor's apartment. Because they didn't have Leslie or his little joker to crack the safe, the crew tore the steel doors from their hinges and hammer and chiseled their way into the vault. Once inside, they tore open as many safety deposit boxes as they could, pocketing jewels and bonds as fast as they could. Ultimately, they came away with close to $3,000,000 in property and another $11,000 in cash. In their hurry, they completely overlooked the cash stored in the vault, a mistake that cost them another $2,000,000. Compounding the bungle, more than half of what they took were non-negotiable securities, a type of security that could only be redeemed by the person whose name was on the certificate. So in the end, the actual take was closer to $258,000, which would be around $7 million in 2021. Frederica would almost certainly have taken her 50% from the usable goods and bonds. So it was still a pretty good score as far as she was concerned. The papers were likewise impressed. The New York Times praised the Manhattan Savings Institution's robbery as one of the most daring and successful burglaries ever perpetrated. The Brooklyn Eagle said it would quote, probably be remembered as the most sensational in the history of bank robberies in the country. Though police had no solid leads on who might've pulled off the job, the list of potential perps wasn't very long and no one would have had to think very hard to guess the robbers were working for Frederica. The wealthy class had begrudgingly accepted her into their ranks, despite full knowledge of her underworld dealings. But the fact that she had targeted one of their establishments was a bridge too far. All of a sudden, Frederica and her gang were wearing out their welcome. Frederica could feel the ground shifting beneath her feet. Society was quickly becoming less hospitable to the criminal element. Every day, it seemed, the papers featured articles crying for someone to clean up the city. Around this time, a growing reform movement within the city's government managed to expose Boss Tweed. Once the most powerful politician in New York, Tweed had used his authority to protect big time criminals like Frederica. Swede's influence was something Frederica had courted and benefited from greatly over the years. With him gone, judges who had once favored the criminal element either returned harsher verdicts or lost their office altogether. As a result, the 1880s saw many of Frederica's men locked away or in hiding. Frederica herself got caught up in a legal drama in 1881. A dry goods merchant from Boston named James Scott brought criminal charges against her, alleging that she had knowingly received almost $25,000 worth of merchandise stolen from his store. It seemed that Frederica's men, Sheeny Mike and James Hoey, had robbed Mr. Scott in January of 1877, At that time, Mr. Scott hired private detectives to find out what happened to his merchandise, and the investigation led to Mike's arrest. Shortly after that, he was found guilty and sentenced to three years in prison for the theft. But when Mike got sick during his sentence, authorities offered him a pardon on the condition that he sign an affidavit confessing to have stolen the goods for Frederica Mandelbaum. So he did. For the first time, Frederica was arrested. At her bail hearing, she vehemently denied the charges, claiming she couldn't possibly have known the goods were stolen. By attempting to distance herself from the crime in this way, Frederica was employing what sociologists Gresham Sykes and David Matza call techniques of neutralization. She probably even took her denial of responsibility a step further, likely telling the judge she was just a shop owner trying to get by like everyone else. By claiming ignorance and pointing the finger at the difficult economy, Frederica was able to effectively deflect the blame. And it worked. After hearing her sob story, the judge set her bail at $5,000, which someone, possibly her close friend and confidant, Herman Studa, took care of, and she went home. After that, the case hung in limbo for three years. But in 1884, the presiding judge was replaced, and a trial date was finally scheduled. Before that date arrived, however, Scott's attorney, Samuel A. Noyce, lost track of his star witness, Sheeny Mike, it seemed, had mysteriously disappeared. Without his testimony, the case didn't stand a chance in criminal court, so the complaint was downgraded to a civil suit. Luckily, Noyce still had the affidavit, so all wasn't lost just yet. That January, Frederica stood trial for receiving stolen goods, As the prosecution presented their case, she finally learned how they were able to make the charges stick, despite her powerful connections. The case against her was as solid as any for civil court. Still, Frederica wasn't going down without a fight. When she took the stand in her own defense, she told the court that she was just a 51-year-old widow, even though she was actually 57 at the time. She told the court she was simply being neighborly and had tried to help Mike as a favor to his mother. She hoped any other mother might do the same for her if one of her children found themselves in such a predicament. Surely the jury could understand that. It seems they couldn't. It's doubtful that anyone on the jury hadn't at least heard of Frederica Mandelbaum and her exploits they found in favor of Mr. Scott and Frederica was ordered to cover the cost of his stolen goods plus interest. Of course, this was basically a slap on the wrist. Frederica simply paid the fee and moved on, but not everyone saw it that way. Some believed it was the first step toward ridding New York of her forever. The newly appointed district attorney, Peter Olney, was particularly inspired. Once upon a time, Olney had been one of Boss Tweed's men, but he had turned a new leaf. He became an ardent proponent of reform and was desperate to rid the city of corruption. Olney figured the best thing he could do to get New York out from under the thumb of criminals was to take out their queen. And by early 1884, he was formulating a plan to put Frederica out of business for good. In his memoir, Recollections of a New York Chief of Police, George Washington Walling wrote that only thought the fact that a woman controlled the most dangerous and wealthy criminal operation in the country was quote, a burning shame. Apparently he'd give his opinion to anyone who would listen and many who wouldn't. Frederica probably would have heard about this through her many contacts and was likely tickled to know she bothered the DA so much. It's unclear what made Olney angrier, the crimes or the fact that Frederica was a woman. Either way, he knew that to take her down, he'd have to work around the NYPD. Having worked with Boss Tweed, he knew just how many police officers and high-ranking officials were in Frederica's pocket. So taking a page out of Mr. Scott's book, Olney hired out. In order to come up with an unimpeachable case against her, he brought in the most notorious private detective firm at the time, the Pinkerton Agency. Founded in 1850, the agency was started to pick up Chicago PD's slack. The general consensus at the time being that most police departments were either corrupt or criminally incompetent. The firm had since spread to almost every major city on the East Coast and even working in the Wild West tracking bandits like Jesse James. When Olney reached out, the Pinkerton agency sent him Gustav Frank for the case. Gustav was specially trained for undercover work and spent weeks working on the perfect fake identity to dupe Frederica. The plan was that Gustav would pose as Joseph Stein, a German fabric seller. Frederica had a particular fondness for silk, so Gustav studied with silk merchants, familiarizing himself with the trade and current rates. He also learned that legitimate businesses had started hiding identifying marks on their bolts so that they could recover the property if it was stolen. While Gustav studied and prepped, the surveillance operation was underway. Several Pinkerton agents rented rooms across the street from Frederica's shop, making note of the comings and goings of her businesses. They quickly learned that Frederica ran a tight ship. You couldn't so much as stop to tie your shoe outside her shop without being tailed by one of her men. Infiltrating this operation was going to be a delicate matter. One wrong move could spell disaster. Even still, after over a month of preparation, Gustav Frank felt ready it was time to infiltrate the city's biggest criminal enterprise. Up next, the great Frederica Mandelbaum is caught at last. Now back to the story. At the beginning of 1884, Frederica Mandelbaum was in trouble New York's new district attorney, Peter Olney, was determined to topple her empire and had hired the famous Pinkerton agency to get the job done. After a month or so of watching and waiting, Gustav Frank made his move. To look the part of Joseph Stein, underworld fabric dealer, Gustav had grown out his hair and beard. Dressed in worn, working-class clothes, He approached Frederica and asked about buying silk for cheap. Frederica barely looked at him before turning him away. She never did business with strangers. You never knew who might be a cop undercover. And even if this new guy wasn't a cop, Frederica didn't work with any old criminal off the street either. She had a process. In addition to having Gustav tailed, Frederica would have reached out to her contacts in the NYPD to find out if anyone was running a scheme against her. But no one knew anything about an open investigation, so things seemed safe enough. As the months passed, Gustav stayed patient. He continued to come back to the store, and eventually Frederica decided to test him. Sometime in June, she sent a message for him to meet her at the shop. When Gustav arrived, Frederica and her son Julius were examining new bolts of silk. Julius pointed out a mark on one of the bolts and Frederica cut it loose. She handed it to him and told him to take it outside and burn it. Dutifully, Gustav took the marked piece of fabric and left the shop. He walked out of sight and simply pocketed the scrap. After a few minutes, he went back inside and told Frederica it had been taken care of. It was enough to please her. But she wasn't quite done testing him yet. The next time he came inquiring about silk, Frederica offered him several bolts at a ridiculous price. Gustav called her bluff and told her what he thought the product was actually worth. Impressed that he actually knew what he was talking about, Frederica decided he couldn't be a cop. So on June 16th, Frederica sold five bolts of silk to Gustav Frank. He took those bolts back to the Pinkerton offices. There, they used the secret marks on each one to trace the bolts back to their original owners. Through it all, Frederica was unaware she had just stepped into a trap. Over the next month, she sold Gustav around 12,000 yards of silk. With all that physical evidence and plenty of surveillance information, the Pinkerton agency had everything they needed. With district attorney Olney, they took their case to a sympathetic judge who happily provided warrants for arrest. On July 22nd, Frederica, her son Julius, and her right hand, Herman Studa, were headed out on an errand. Before they could pull away from the curb, a clean-shaven stranger tapped on the window of their carriage. Annoyed by the interruption, Frederica commanded Studa to open the door and find out what the person wanted. The man forced his way into the carriage, brandishing a piece of paper like a weapon. Though he looked completely different in a suit and without a beard, Frederica immediately recognized Joseph Stein. This time, he introduced himself to her as Detective Gustav Frank and told her that he was there to arrest her. Frederica was furious, partly at Gustav for duping her, but perhaps also with herself for being duped. No one likes to feel tricked, But some people are so motivated to avoid those feelings of embarrassment and self-doubt, it actually becomes sugrophobia, the fear of being a sucker. If anyone had reason to be sugrophobic, it was Frederica. So feeling foolish and angry, she stood up and punched Gustav square in the face. The detective reared back, holding his bloody nose while his colleagues put Frederica in handcuffs. Then they arrested Julius and Studa, and all three were taken to Harlem. Standing before a judge once again, Frederica took up the same defense as last time. The charges were baloney, she declared indignantly. She was an upstanding citizen, targeted for having a good relationship with the police. Despite her grand statements, the judge arraigned all three, Frederica, Julius, and Studa, on charges of grand larceny then he set bail at five thousand dollars each for julius and studa the price for frederica's freedom was ten thousand dollars paying the bail turned out to be a tricky obstacle see bail was supposed to be paid by someone willing to take responsibility for the plaintiff typically either julius or studa would handle it with frederica's money But this time, they were in no position to help anyone. But eventually, the news reached Little Germany that Frederica Mandelbaum, Marm, needed help, and the neighborhood rallied. Frederica and her operation were central to the neighborhood's way of life. She was the tide that raised their boats, and this was their opportunity to repay her. After several neighbors came forward to pay the bail, all three were released. Frederica immediately met with her legal team to plan their defense. Neither Frederica nor her lawyers, William Howe and Abe Hummel, were all that concerned with the charges. Frederica saw no reason this case wouldn't go the way all the others had gone. And Howe was more than confident in his ability to talk circles around any judge and prosecutor. Howe's first successful maneuver was a motion for a change of venue, which would undoubtedly slow down the proceedings. And luckily, the judge hearing the motion was a friend of Frederica's. Ignoring the DA's protests, he approved it, and the trial was pushed back. Now Olney was annoyed, but not deterred. He had Pinkerton detectives tracking Frederica's every move, ensuring she couldn't slip through their fingers. Of course, Frederica knew she was being watched. She also knew how difficult it would be for her to shake such well-trained tails. Heck, even a poorly trained detective couldn't lose her in a crowd. She stood head and shoulders above most people and, almost as if celebrating how much she stood out, was never without her favorite feathered hat. For about six months, whenever Frederica left her house, she made it a point to acknowledge the detectives around her. She'd wave and parade around her carriage to give them a good view of her before she left for her errand, which was usually to visit her attorney's office. But the news was rarely good. As the trial crept closer, her case seemed more and more like a lost cause. Frederica was furious and frustrated. She had spent millions over the years to ensure this type of thing never happened, yet here she was. There was no way she was going to jail, not now, not ever. She had poured blood, sweat, and tears into getting everything she had. She was not going to lose it. It was time for plan B. The Friday before Frederica's trial was just like every Friday before it. She waved to the detectives on duty as she climbed into her carriage, ducking extra low so her feathers didn't catch on the ceiling. She headed out to her usual stop, the office of Howe and Hummel. By this point, the detectives working her case must have been bored silly. Frederica's knowledge that they were there had sucked all the drama out of the surveillance work and they'd spent months watching her do the same exact thing over and over. They had no idea they'd played right into her long con. That day, Frederica stayed in her lawyer's office for a few hours, which was fairly standard. Then, like always, she emerged to climb into her carriage, the wave, the feathers, and the drive back home. What the detectives failed to notice was that the woman waving to them from under those feathers was not Frederica Mandelbaum. The real Frederica waited in her lawyer's office while her decoy led the Pinkertons away. Months of groundwork had paid off beautifully, but the plan wasn't over yet. Next, a carriage took her to a train station 20 miles away in New Rochelle. There, she boarded the train to Canada, where Julius and Studa were already waiting for her in Toronto. It broke her heart to leave her beloved little Germany. It was the place she and Wolf had raised their family, the place she had achieved more than she ever dreamed possible. But Frederica was a smart woman in a lot of ways. She knew that no matter what happened at her trial, the tides had turned. The systems that helped her survive were crumbling. Like a wound fighting an infection, New York was becoming less hospitable for criminals like her. The news of Frederica's disappearance spread like wildfire throughout New York. D.A. Olney put on a good face for the press, acting as if his victory hadn't been snatched from him. He claimed he was just happy she was gone. And maybe that was true. Meanwhile, Frederica settled in Hamilton, not far from Toronto. There, she, Julius, and Studa opened a dry goods store that boasted unbelievably low prices. Life was uneventful for a time. Frederica's two youngest children joined her in Canada, but her oldest daughter, Sarah, stayed behind in New York with her husband then while visiting her sister in the city in 1885 frederica's youngest annie died suddenly of pneumonia despite the incredible danger frederica returned to new york for her daughter's funeral nothing would have kept her from it she probably would have fought the entire pinkerton agency on her own to be there Strangely, not a single detective was waiting for the infamous Marm Mandelbaum at the service. Although plenty of reporters hovered nearby, hoping to catch a glimpse of the queen of fences. After the service, Frederica returned to her quiet life in Hamilton. Nearly a decade later in 1894, she died of kidney disease. At least that's the official story There were many rumors that Frederica faked her death in order to return to her beloved New York. Even after she was laid to rest next to her husband and daughter, Marm Mandelbaum's sightings remained a popular feature in local newspapers for years. She had loomed large over the city for so long, it seems no one wanted to believe she was truly gone. Like true royalty, her story, her legacy, lingered on. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Frederica Mandelbaum, amongst the many sources we used, we found Queen of Thieves, the true story of Marm Mandelbaum and her gangs of New York by J. North Conway, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Megan Hannum, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson.